three. Welcome to Highest Potential with Dr. Steve Pettit, a podcast that explores the many ways Bob Jones University is advancing God's kingdom through Christian education with the biblical worldview. I'm Daniel Lehman, a current student at BJU and co-host for this podcast. Well, welcome today to Highest Potential. I'm Steve Pettit, president of Bob Jones University, and uh, we're excited to be back here and in, in talking about relevant things here at Bob Jones University. And I have our, our student representative here, Mr. Daniel Lehman. Daniel, how you doing? Very good. How you doing today, Doc? I'm doing great. Good. So how was your Christmas break? Christmas break was amazing. I always loved going back home. It was very relaxing. It was a wonderful time with family, friends, food, and a whole lot of sleep. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it, it's very relaxing. As I remember Sterling, Illinois, there's not a lot in Sterling, Illinois to do. There's hardly anything. You're absolutely right. <laughs> but uh, you got to be home, and then you got back here to school. We get we get started, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden... It did a beautiful thing. It snowed. <laughs> it snowed. And of course, here in Greenville, when it snows, everything shuts down. It Completely. was like... The time Completely. off is like the fall break. This was like a fall break the first week of school. Yeah, after three days of classes, the Lord decided, you know what, we're going to let it snow and give you a nice long weekend. <laughs> so, I didn't complain at all. <laughs> you know, I think everybody's doing well. Well, we we are remembering uh, in today's uh, program, uh, this 22nd of January, 1973, which was when our U.S. Supreme Court um, legalized abortion through mm-hmm. the Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. And today we had in chapel Dr. Mark Chetta speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is a professor here at BJU. He's the chair of our pre-med department. And uh, tell me about the effect of that message today, Daniel. Well, obviously he talked about pro-life. I mean, that, that was kind of the main thrust of it. And it was really, I, I'm a ministry leadership major, so obviously this is something that we, we've talked about, but it was really neat hearing it from a medical expert's perspective, even going back to some of the science behind it, and even how Scripture supports the very science and the proof that we have there, just the whole aspect of pro-life that he went to. And I really enjoyed how he talked about adoption, even the full spectrum of it. It's right. not just at the point of conception. It's, I mean, this is another aspect of pro-life that oftentimes believers don't even think about. Well, it's very clear that life begins at conception, mm-hmm. and uh, at conception you actually become a person. Mm-hmm which he showed very clearly. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that we need to do something about it. Yes. So I hope you'll enjoy our program today as we talk to Dr. Mark Chetta. Well, today we are so delighted to have Dr. Mark Chetta here with us in my office. Dr. Chetta is the, uh, he is the chair of the a pre-med department here at Bob Jones University. And Doc, thanks for being with us today. Uh, it's good to be here. We had just an incredible message today in chapel by Dr. Chetta on the sanctity of life as we recognize that January 22nd, this coming Saturday, uh, is the 49th um, uh, year of the Roe versus Wade. And Dr. Chetta, I know that this is something that's very important to you. And we'll talk about that throughout the course of our time together. But first of all, thanks for being with us. And uh, I, we'll come back to that that point I want to make. But we, give us a little background from your past, how you came to be, be a believer, how you got into medicine, and how you got to Bob Jones. Well, I was, uh, I was raised in a church that taught works for salvation. And 
<clears throat> I was a pre-med uh, student at uh, LSU. Are you I, from Louisiana originally? I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Baton Rouge. And I was heavily indoctrinated in evolution as a science major. I was a, a biology or zoology major, chemistry minors. I was heavily indoctrinated in evolution. And that was my big impediment to getting saved. Mm. When, I was, when I was a senior, a young man with Campus Crusade for Christ just asked me out of the clear blue sky. He said, Mark, if you die tonight, where would you spend eternity? Well, I thought he was crazy, but it haunted me. I could not answer that question properly. Two weeks later, I saw him on campus, and he invited me to a Bible study. They called them action groups. And I actually met with this young man privately probably for six, eight months and could not get over the evolution versus creation controversy. Reason being... I knew that if, if Genesis was false, then Jesus was a myth. Mm -hmm. But if Genesis was true, then Jesus was true. Mm -hmm. And God did two amazing things. In the spring of my senior year, he brought um, Dr. Henry Morris, the founder of Institute Creation Research. Now here's a guy, who's a PhD in hydraulic engineering, he was the chairman of the Department of Engineering at Virginia Polytech. He was well-written, peer-reviewed, very, very intelligent. And he wrote the book with John Wickham called The Genesis Flood. And I bought that book and I read it, and so much of it made sense. And then about six weeks later, Campus Crusade sponsored Dr. Dwayne Gish. Here's a Ph.D. biochemist from UCLA, Berkeley, not exactly what I would consider a... a uh, real conservative place, but he wrote the book, Evolution, the Fossils Say No. And here's a guy that was a silver star winner in Korea, in the Korean War. This guy was a, he was a bulldog. In fact, when he would debate uh, evolutionists, they, they would quit debating him because he was so, so witty and so uh, dogmatic and, and so intelligent. And I read that book. I bought that book, Evolution, the Fossils Say No. <clears throat> those two books, those two men, I realized here's some eminent scholars who do not drink the, the grape juice or whatever it was. Kool-Aid. The Kool-Aid, thank yeah. you. They do not accept the current dogma. Mm. And so it was after that that I was able to believe that, that creation was true, the, the six literal 24-hour days. Therefore, Jesus was true, and I gave my life to Jesus Christ. That's how I got saved. That was your senior year of college? Senior year of college. And after that, you went straight into med school? Right. And uh, you finished there at LSU? Right. And when did you meet your wife? Well, interesting. Um, <clears throat> so I was studying for an anatomy final at my best friend's. The guy that led me to Christ also went to med school. And I was studying at his apartment, and across the hall— were five girls living together that were in grad school somewhere in New Orleans, and Helen was one of them. Mm. And I met her, and I just was like, I was like smitten. Yeah. She wasn't smitten, but I was. Oh, yeah. I and, can see that. <laughs> so anyway, um, we eventually fell in love and got married, and um, my pro-life story begins at that point. Okay. And so uh, let's let's. I know you're a very strong advocate for pro-life, and you're involved here in the Greenville community. So, 
Tell us about that. What, what, what moved you in this way? Well, <clears throat> we, it's interesting. We did what 99% of all young married couples do. I put Helen on the birth control pill and contraception. That's what everybody did. Well, for a whole year, Helen was not herself. The hormones, it's a one-size-fits-all kind of situation, and it changed her metabolism. It changed her physiology. It changed her mood. She was very uh, moody and would cry at the drop of a hat. And after a year, I said, Helen, we need to stop this. So she got off the birth control pill. But one thing I didn't know, well, there's two things I didn't know about the pill. One is that if you use a hormone like that to manipulate your hormones, it actually will negatively feed back on your pituitary gland in your brain and your hypothalamus in the brain and will actually downregulate it. And it can take upwards of a year and a half to two years to get that re-regulated. So here we were ready to have children, and we went one year, two years, two and a half years, and she still was not able to conceive. And we regret that now. I look back on that with great regret because we could have had two more children mm. during that time period. And Helen's best, most reproductive years mm. were, were unfortunately... Right. So then we, we were fortunate by the grace of God to have three children. I was from a family of three kids. Helen was from a family of three kids. We figured, okay... We've, we've got our, our little quiver. Uh, we've got what, you know, the, the average family. And I remember I was working in Mississippi. I was a family doc that did obstetrics and surgery and ER, and I was working 100, 110 hours a week. And I came home one day, and Helen said, Mark, I'm pregnant. And I remember just being so, so despairing, so despondent, so down on the idea of another child and I was just bitter and eight months later I came home from work and Helen said Mark I haven't felt the baby move in four hours mm. so I took her to the hospital and did an ultrasound on her there was no heartbeat <laughs> and I realized that we had a we had a Matthew and a Mark and this would have been Luke mm. I realized that Luke was no longer alive and I didn't feel comfortable delivering him, so I called a friend of mine in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. We went up there, and he induced her. And when the baby was delivered, it was a perfectly beautiful little five-pound mm -hmm. boy. The cord was wrapped around his neck five mm -hmm. times, and that's what choked the life out of him. Mm -hmm. But it broke my heart because I realized that the most important thing in life is life, and children are such a blessing you know, Psalm 127, verse 3 says, Lo, children are the inheritance of the Lord, and the fruit of the, of the room is his reward. Mm. And I was, it was like I was throwing away the pearl to keep the pretty little shell mm -hmm. of life. And that's what changed everything. I just had this 180-degree turn that children were, were God-sent and it's really what he wants. Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such is the kingdom of heaven. And when you look at Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission, it's very little chance that I'm going to have to disciple the mm. world. Mm -hmm. But it's the greatest parenting verses. Right. It says, go ye into all the world. Go into your family and disciple them, teaching them all that I have commanded. 
you and, and lo, I am with you to the end of the world. I had an opportunity to disciple seven arrows and send them out. Right. And now we have 21 grandchildren. They're following the Lord in church. And, and this is my, my tribe, right. my patriarchal family. And I may not do anything. I may never be on the Time magazine cover. But as a patriarch of this tribe, this is my, my commission. Right, right. So tell us about, uh, let's go back to uh, uh, your, your involvement with Pro-Life Matters. Um, obviously, January 22nd, 1973 was the day that abortion uh, was made legal in the United States. Tell us what's happened since then and your involvement, and then where do you see the pro-life movement right now? Well, it's interesting. Uh, of course, the Roe v. Wade decision made abortion legal in all 50 states, and it even made abortion legal up to the time of birth. Mm. And now in some states, you can even have post-birth abortions, which is unbelievable, that after a baby's born, you can decide to kill it. Mm. So is that where we have come? Early on in my, after the tragedy with Luke, I joined an, a, an organization called Operation Rescue. I don't know if you know this, but mm. I've been to jail twice. No, I didn't know yeah, that. So, so Operation Rescue would, we would go to abortion clinics and we would just do a sit-in on their steps and try to prevent women from being able to go in to kill their babies. And we had counselors on the sidewalks to counsel and the first time that we were arrested, and I went to this jail. This is in Baton Rouge or Mississippi? No, this was in Mississippi, in Jackson, okay. Mississippi. Okay. First time I was arrested, the police that arrested us were very sympathetic. They said, listen, we're sorry. We know that it's, it's terrible when you call good evil and evil good, mm. but we have to do our job. It's like they were apologetic. And they took us to jail. And it's interesting, of the 50 people that's, that sat and and tried to keep people from being able to kill their babies while we had sidewalk counselors. I would say my friend and I were the only two Baptists. Mm. The rest were either Catholics mm. or Presbyterians. And I, I know, uh, I just want to say thank you to the Catholic Church because there would be no, I don't think there'd be much of a pro-life movement. And to tell you what I mean, we had seven children. We'd go into a restaurant like McDonald's or something and someone would say, how many kids you got? And I'd say seven. They go, are you Mormon? Are you Catholic? I go, no, I'm Baptist. It's a shame that the first words that come out of people's mouths is, you must be Mormon or Catholic. I wish they would say, oh, you must be Baptist. You must be Bible-believing Christians then. But anyway, um, I'll never forget being in jail the first time. We were in a concrete building. Fifty believers began singing mm. four-part harmony in this concrete building, and it was like you were in heaven. It was amazing. Mm. And uh, so I, I was sort of radical. And uh, the second time we were arrested was the same thing. Interesting thing on the second time we were arrested, we had a pregnant lady. I, she was pregnant, but she also had a little baby that sat down with us. And she was, um, they sent the an investigator, a pediatric investigator, a child's investigator, to take her to, uh, to jail. And while she was sitting in the back seat of the patrol car, she led the 
the child investigator to Christ. Yeah, that's amazing. And with tears in his eyes, he went into the captain, slammed his his badge on the table and says, when we start arresting good people, mm. then I quit. He's now a pastor in Mississippi. Wow, that's amazing. So <clears throat> you got him. So you were involved in a lot of events over the years, and uh, you, uh, I know you, you, you ended up coming to Bob Jones from, was it from Georgia? Yes. Is that where you had started that business you were involved? Yes. In? Okay. Uh-huh. And tell us how you got to Bob Jones. <laughs> well. Um, I was an ER physician and the head of the ER for 20 years in um, Habersham County Medical Center in Georgia. And I was in 2010 in September, I was in the ER doing a clinical rotation, seeing patients. And I get a phone call from my daughter, Allison, who at the time was a pre-med major. And uh, Here at Bob Jones? Here at Bob Jones. Okay. And she said, Dad, Bob Jones is looking for an anatomy professor. I said, oh, that's wonderful, honey. I'll be praying for you guys. She goes, no, Dad, I want you to consider doing it. Hmm. Well, I had thought about, you know, I couldn't keep up with the adrenaline rush of ER indefinitely. So I had thought about different segues, and it never was on my radar. So she gave me the name of the professor to call, and I called and came over in October, did a trial lecture. It was not on my radar, but God absolutely aligned the planets mm. because I sold my bill. This is in the middle of a recession. 2010 is the middle of the recession. I sold my my business, replaced myself in the clinical rotation, and got ahead of the ER in four months. Mm. So my last shift in the ER was December 30th of 2010, and 10 days later I walked onto the campus of Bob Jones University. Wow. Started teaching. Yeah, one interesting caveat, when Allison first called me about the anatomy lab, anatomy teacher physician, I said, okay, well, whatever. So I went home and I did the spiritual thing. I took my Bible and I put it on its backside and I slapped it down and, and it opened right up. And it opened up to Psalm 78, uh, 18, I think it is. It says, now that I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not until I've shown thy power unto this generation and thy strength unto all those that are to come. Mm. And I felt like that God was just telling me, I want you to go and teach. Well, I know that you've had a, an incredible impact here because you've taught hundreds and hundreds of students over the last 11 or 12 years, many many that are gone out in the medical profession. I, I, know, I don't know how many since you've been here, but quite a few. Yes. And um, when you teach the class... Tell me what your, your, your passion is, because I know it, it's got to come out. Well, I was saved as a result of creation science. And so one of my passions is to try to get students to see that creation is valid scientifically. It's satisfying spiritually. And pointing out that evolution is a faith-based belief. Mm-hmm. And creation is faith-based. Mm-hmm. You know, most evolutionists use what is called the, the logical fallacy of equivocation. They'll use a word that means one thing in a deceitful way. Like they'll say, science proves 
evolution, or science proves that there's a, a divide between religion and science. Well, what they're talking about is not methodological, repeatable, verifiable, observable science. They're talking about theoretical or mm. historical science. You know, the greatest scientist of history, Sir Isaac Newton, von Leeuwenhoek, Humphrey Davies, William Harvey, these were all brilliant Christians. And so to say that there's some kind of anti-science bias among creationists right. is not true. Right. And they, they use that all the time, that, that fallacy of equivocation. You spoke today in chapel about the sanctity of life, and you talked about uh, when does life begin? Yeah, I. Um, so to the the whole idea of when Adam was formed by God, God took dust, literally the dust of the earth, and He put together the atoms and the molecules, the proteins, the lipids the polysaccharides, and I can just see Adam lying down on the ground there, just a perfect human being, but not alive. Right. And God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. The word there is nephesh, which means uh, a breathing, living soul. And then God then takes a rib out of Adam, about a trillion cells, we estimate, Those cells included red blood cells, white blood cells, bone cells, cartilage cells, muscle cells. And God had to do an interesting thing on that rib because all of those rib cells were XY in their genetic genome. God had to amputate, extricate out the Y chromosome and insert an X chromosome. But in in taking Adam's cells, which were living, and making Eve, the breath of God, the nephesh of God, pass from Adam into Eve. And then Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel, and later Seth, and then the progeny, one after another, so that every one of us, at the moment of conception, mm. when the sperm and the egg come together, at that moment, the breath of God that went into Adam 6,000 years ago and passed through all generations since then, Life can only beget life. You cannot get non-life to become life. Life has to beget life. And the nephesh, the breath of God, passes into you and into me and into all of us. It's a miracle. Yeah, it's the breath of God. We have the breath of God. So if we get the breath of God at conception, Mm -hmm. how can we stop that? How can we negate that? How can we destroy that? And so the, the, the pro-abortion advocates came up with another idea. said, okay, we admit that life begins at conception. But does it become a person at conception? There are many verses in the Bible to substantiate that. One of my favorites is Psalm 51.5. Remember, this is the contritional psalm of David where he, he admits his failure with Bathsheba and causing Uriah to be murdered. In verse 5, he says this, In sin did my mother conceive me. What does he mean by that? Jesse and his mom were married. It must mean that the soul, the sin nature, must become part of that conception, part of that passage of of life to life. 
so that David became, had the sin nature of Adam at the moment of conception. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Therefore, he was a soul. There are many verses, Jeremiah 1, 5, Isaiah 44, verse 2, Romans 5, 12. All of those substantiate the fact that we receive a sin nature, but also that God had plans for us. Right, right. For each one of us. Well, it was a it was a tremendous message, and I think you closed up with, uh, and we'll close out today with this. And um, what you know, the, the pro life movement in the United States has been fairly strong, yes, and, and has had an impact. Yes. Uh, in fact, just to, it's interesting, the baby boomers, and the the next generation. I forget what they're called, Gen Xers or whatever. Yeah, Gen Xers. Or actually not as pro-life as Gen Y and Gen Z. Mm-hmm. Actually, the percentage of young people that do not buy into abortion on demand is actually growing. Wow. So today, if you're, you're a student or you're, um, you know, you're, you're where, wherever you are in life, what are some of the things you encourage people to do? Well, I mean, I, being an advocate for life, I encourage people to get married and have lots of kids. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I mean, we should, you know, all that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. Right. And according to that verse in Proverbs about if we say that we didn't know that people were being drawn unto death, if we say that we didn't know it, does not he, God, that gave life, does he not know that you knew it? Yeah. I think we have an obligation to stand up for life. Right. And so I would just like to encourage listeners, get involved with your Right to Life chapter there, your crisis pregnancy centers there, write letters to your your senators and representatives. Do not let the pro-abortion advocates think that we're wearing out. Right. We must keep it ever before people. Let me and Pam Evett, who was our who is our lieutenant governor, said something that's very important, and y'all need to hear this. In the, in the Declaration of Independence, as we hold these truths to be self-evident, that means obvious, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That means cannot be given up, cannot be taken away. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. She said this, if we do not win the battle of the sanctity of life, if we do not protect life, if we do not fight this fight, then there is no other right that can be guaranteed mm-hmm. to us. If they can take away the right to life, they can take away the right to free speech, the right to uh, assemble, the right to private property, and we're already seeing that happen. Right. Well, those are very uh, uh, sobering and yet um, uh, passionate words. And, Doc, thank you for your time today. We, I was thrilled with Chapel today. I want to encourage people to go online. You can hear it at sermonaudio.com. Or you can go and check out our webcast in on bju.edu. And I hope that you'll uh, tell other people about this webcast, uh, this, uh, this podcast, excuse me, that we're doing today. And we're continuing on through Highest Potential. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Highest Potential with Dr. Steve Pettit. Don't forget to find us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.